the darkness, the thing we as humans most fear. But that's not quite right, is it? The darkness is nothing. It's the absorption of all color, all light. It has no reflection. We can move our hands through it, feel its weightlessness. How can we be frightened of a thing that doesn't exist? A thing that can't be carried, that can't be lost, nor found. No, we don't fear the darkness. We fear what it conceals. I'm Ariel Cooksey, and this is Malice. Episodes may be listened to out of order or on their own. The subject matter of each is in the order intended for the listener. This episode will contain some graphic descriptions of violence that some listeners will find disturbing. If these issues may be triggering, please practice self-care and do not proceed. Whoever fights monsters should see to it that in the process he does not become monster. And if you gaze long enough into an abyss, the abyss will gaze back into you. Friedrich Nietzsche, Beyond Good and Evil. It was considerably warmer than usual that Tuesday evening in Seattle, though 75 degrees was hardly sweltering. Still partly cloudy, the night was pregnant with humidity as she walked down the sidewalk. A Tuesday, it wasn't like her to party, though she'd taken a break from her studies to stop by and have a few beers with friends. She was a social butterfly and would have been missed had she not made an appearance. She'd had to bow out early to study for a test she was particularly concerned about. Accompanied by her roommate, the two chatted lightheartedly on their walk home, cutting through an alleyway they'd traversed many times before, a shortcut to their destination. They stopped at the Kappa Alpha Theta sorority house, where they both lived, and she hung back to watch her friend go safely inside before heading off to see her boyfriend at his close-by fraternity house. Young love, there's nothing that compares. She was a smart girl and studious too. During this, her freshman year, the 18-year-old had flourished with an A average, a budding social circle, and even a job lined up for when she returned home to visit her parents over the summer. She was the quintessential golden girl, I hate the word bubbly, but it's hard not to use it here. She just made people happy. In her blue bell-bottom slacks, missing a button she deftly fastened with a safety pin, swinging her handbag with her little bottle of heaven-sent perfume, she left her boyfriend's place in the wee small hours of the morning. She smiled as she noticed students through open windows all down the lighted street. It was a short walk, but noticing them made her feel a sense of camaraderie. They were just like her. She was just like them, making something of themselves. She turned back into the brightly lit alleyway toward her home, away from home, when she heard a friend call out to her. Delighted, of course she stopped to talk with him through his open window. 
They both needed to get back to studying, so their conversation was brief. But in the few moments they spoke, he recalled, he'd heard something that sounded like like a cackling kind of laughter from somewhere in the dark. She noticed, too. It was a bit unnerving, as you can imagine, but she only had 50 feet to go before reaching the back door of the sorority house. In those 50 feet, across from the congregational church, in the bright glow of the streetlights, that familiar path she'd taken hundreds of times before, she disappeared without a sound. I think you know where this is going, but before we dive too deeply down the rabbit hole, we need to get something straight. What do we mean by serial killer? There are surprisingly more definitions than you might think. Currently, the FBI defines a serial killer as an individual who kills two or more people, or attempts to, with a cooling off period in between. By this definition, mass shooters don't qualify. Spree killers who kill in quick succession don't qualify, nor do family annihilators. That's fair, but for our purposes, I think it's important to make a few distinctions. When I discuss serial killers, it's not a matter of just repeatedly killing. Serial killers, insofar as the psychosocial makeup suggests, just doesn't put all repeat killers on the same page. For instance, I would hardly characterize Jerome Brudos or John Wayne Gacy as of the same ilk as a mob hitman or a recurrent widower for the purposes of insurance payouts. Psychopathic? Most likely. But it's like comparing apples and oranges. They're both fruits, but they're definitely not the same. So for now, these are the guidelines that will frame our discussions. A serial killer is an individual who commits at least two compulsive criminal homicides, or homicides motivated by a pathological need or fantasy, over an undefined period of time. There is a period of time between the homicides, but I find cooling off to be too presumptive. Instead, I'll take a page from Dr. Sasha Reed, preeminent scholar on serial killers and creator of the world's largest database of serial killers, with more than 6,000 compared among hundreds of dimensions. She defines the time in between as a return to a psychological state of calm, or, in other words, a normative level of functioning. The crimes themselves need to be better defined as well. Simply put, these crimes cannot be carried out for revenge, financial gain, nor at the behest of another. The murders must be done intentionally and purposefully, so, by process of exclusion, you can't be psychotic and be a serial killer, at least not in the sense I mean here. There must be conscious deliberation, malice. That said, the purpose is deriving pleasure from acquiring a victim and enacting their fantasy upon them. According to Dr. Reed, sometimes the murder itself is done simply because they don't want to get caught. Aside from these qualities, nothing else connects serial killers, really. I know some of your minds are flittering back to the McDonald triad, the three antecedent behaviors that are commonly thought to lead to the future serial killers, bedwetting past the age of six, fire starting, and animal cruelty. I hate to tell you this, <laughs> okay, not really, but the whole thing is bunk. Dr. McDonald himself cautioned that the triad is not predictive. His general sample size was very small, and all of the violent offenders he interviewed were at the time incarcerated. So while their backgrounds showed some commonality, 
without subsequent studies with larger sample sizes and comparison or control groups, we don't know enough to make any type of causal argument. So how did the myth come to be? People drawing fallacious conclusions. Yep, they jumped the shark. Even the FBI did so. And once it began to be touted as what to look for, it stuck. People like having boxes to check. It makes things easier. But just for the sake of further explanation, let me break down why the behaviors are not indicators of future violence on their own. Let's start with enuresis, or bedwetting, past the age of six. Six is the average age most children are consistently able to sleep through the night without wetting the bed. But a seven-year-old without mastery? There are so many reasons this could be the case. Sometimes a simple trip to the pediatrician can establish the cause to be biological. Sometimes it's a matter of children maturing at different speeds. If the cause is not biological, it's often due to stress or anxiety, and a counselor would be another good option to try to suss out the cause of the issue. But, in general, each progressive year, 15% more children will achieve a normal level of urine retention overnight. So, if your child is over the age of six and still wetting the bed, the best resolution, usually, is just wait. I would like to add a caveat, however. If a child has established normal urinary control overnight and then regresses to enuresis, it's a big red flag. This is not an indicator, nor predictor, of future violence, but it is often evidence of trauma occurring in the child's life. Coming from a background in child welfare and mental health, I have witnessed common causes include abuse, neglect, and sexual trauma. Fire starting may seem to be a destructive behavior, but in most children, it begins as a curiosity. Fire is pretty fascinating, and as children, we don't always have the abstract understanding of how dangerous it may be. Yes, some children continue to set fires in order to be destructive, but once more, this speaks to a trauma response. It's worth noting, as well, that arson and pyromania are not interchangeable. Setting fires with a practical purpose, even if a negative one, is a rational act. Pyromania is a sexual response to starting fires and the fires themselves. Their desire is to set fires not towards an explicit goal, but it's process-driven. They get off on the act itself. As for animal cruelty, I find this one in particular very poorly defined. At what age is a child being cruel? How is cruelty determined? Is all cruelty, however interpreted, equal? Without the benefit of answers to these questions, I'm just going to walk through this from a developmental perspective. Children can begin to develop empathy as early as two years old, but this is not necessarily prescriptive. We can look to even five-year-olds and watch them demonstrate great compassion and revert into shrieking egomaniacs the next moment. Interactions with other living things, whether people or animals, often begin inconsistently and based upon a simple calculus of cost-benefit. Essentially, if the interaction makes the child feel good, the child continues the interaction. Without the fine-tuned ability to entertain abstract thought, a child may not, as with fire setting, truly understand the implications or effects of their behavior. Picture this. A three-year-old approaches the family dog, an animal with whom she has established a positive relationship and likes to interact. She waddles over to the animal and plops down right on top of it, causing the dog to shriek and squirm away. 
This child probably has no idea what produced this reaction, nor what the reaction means. They certainly have no concept they caused it. If a 15-year-old did this, depending on their mental age, this could easily be interpreted as animal cruelty. But even a five-year-old pulling a cat's tail or accidentally drowning a hamster while trying to give it a bath? The child is still experimenting with boundaries and practicing social mirroring. There's no malintent. I would like to caution, however, that if a child demonstrates anger, frustration, or deliberately harmful behaviors towards animals, it's not a foregone conclusion you're dealing with a little baby psychopath. I would be more concerned that a child is experiencing or witnessing violence. Children, and people in general, who feel a lack of control in their lives tend to find ways in which to exert power how they can. In children, they often look towards the things that are smaller, weaker, and more vulnerable. There are many reasons a child may enact violence, ranging from relating with the abuser or simply trying to pass the pain to someone or something else. But it is rarely because a child is just wired to be an antisocial monster. Okay, so in each case of these prospective antecedent behaviors, I mentioned abuse, neglect, or sexual trauma. So couldn't that be a unifying factor among serial killers? It's not a bad thought, but no, it's not. Roughly 90% of adjudicated serial killers have experienced some form of childhood abuse. It's probably a precipitating factor to learning violence, but not a predictor that they will behave violently. And in plenty of serial killers, there's no known abuse at all. Leopold and Loeb, H.H. H. Holmes, Joel Rifkin, Ted Bundy, nothing to write home about. So though many serial killers do come from abusive homes, we come back to the common refrain. Correlation does not equal causation. Come on, Ariel, there must be something. What about blows to the head? Can't that knock some screws loose? Yes, of course, and we're learning more about it all the time. Neuroscientists have found compelling evidence that lesions to a particular brain network can contribute to the likelihood of an individual committing a crime. However, and this is a big however, researchers attribute a paltry 9% of violence to traumatic brain injuries. While 14% of this is associated with frontal lobe injury, the system that guides conscience and moral decision-making, in 2014, of the 249 mass killings, only 20% could actually be attributable to brain damage. No, my friends, of the thousands of killers on Dr. Reed's database, across the hundreds of dimensions of comparison, only one common denominator exists. They all see themselves as victims. As always, thank you so much for listening. It means the world to me. This series is slated to be at least 30 parts, and will be going deeply into a case people only think they know. Throughout, I will be interviewing experts, including FBI, defense attorneys, scholars, authors, detectives, survivors, criminologists, and others who bring their unique insights to this exploration. And through the benefit of archival recordings, I will also dialogue with the most unusual expert on the case, the killer himself. To listen to the series in its entirety or simply wish to support the show, visit patreon.com slash malicepod. 
where for as little as a dollar a month, you have ad-free access and hours of additional content. Find me on social media at MalicePod across all platforms. I love interacting with my listeners, so stop by and say hi. Until then, I'm Ariel Cooksey, and this is Malice.